So make sure your shit is working. It's working? You got your battery charged? No, I do not have it plugged in. Fuck. But I'm at like, as long as you don't talk for like three hours, we're fine. Wait, what what percentage is your... your... I'm at 62%, so... 63? 62%, so... Didn't you just plug in the mic and other things, so isn't that that pulling more battery power? Why don't you just plug it in? I'm going to plug it in, but if you don't talk for fucking ever, I'm going to... Actually, I'm going to stop plugging it in. I'm going to start at 100, and then it just cuts off when it cuts off. If you you lose it, it's going to be because you wouldn't shut up. That's pretty much. I'm laughing because you're not wrong. All right. Welcome back. Back again. This is like what our last show before Christmas was, I believe. I believe if you celebrate that type of holiday, you know. Oh, look, man, I'm as liberal as they come, and look, whatever. If you get offended <laughs> by Christmas, I actually do have a problem with you, so chill uh... <laughs> Happy holidays, don't tell me Christmas. You know what, it, it, it's like when people say, oh, God, oh, God, or whatever. It's not that they believe in God, it's just an expression. It's an expression mm-hmm. for the holidays. The Lord's name so I name. do believe one of the Ten Commandments. that you're kind of a... Do, do you think people anyway anyway back to the right. back to anyway. the yes this is how we get we only have two minutes and 25 seconds oh, left for this show so got them organic all right fatherhood and then we're gonna go through that real quick and then we're gonna get on some education uh issues coming out of cali whiz kids former state so real quick for fatherhood whiz how was it this week yeah, so we we normally would have our two and a half year old in swim class, but we had to cancel because people are crazy. Uh, they just don't care, basically. Um, especially when he moved up to the next level, we basically had to make them move him up. We're like, it's time for him to move up, right? It's time to move up. Usually they ring the bell when a kid does it. None of that. When he went to his first class, they didn't do like a transition. Like, hey, here's your first class. Here's what to expect. It was just like, all right, come here, sit down, do some stuff. Yeah. And then on top of that, every other week, there's a new teacher, the teacher's out, something, oh, we canceled class, here's a note 15 minutes before class, or oh, when you get there, my parents were in town, we drove all the way over there so they could see him swim, and they're like, oh, sorry, something happened, class is canceled. Mm. So, terrible. No phone call, terrible. nothing? They, as, I guess they sent an email or something, like, 10 minutes that's before that. Yeah, that's not um, good. Yeah. That, and then the only other thing is... Uh, actually, I'll wait. I'll go to you and then come back. Oh yeah, because it ties back. So yeah, um, yeah I you know I, I frequently have talked about kids and the, the stuff that they annoy me, and I'm I, I do get refreshed when I hang out with other folks and see how just badass their kids are, and it makes me go, okay, so my kids aren't so bad. But that doesn't stop me from being supremely aggravated by the stuff that my kids do do. Right? He said do you know, so then a lot of times I feel like I'm in the minority in this um, because of that, you know, well, if everybody, you know, but it doesn't seem like the, like the parents are all j- just as crazy about what's going on, but then the kids are worse. Anyhow, I always feel like for some reason I'm the outlier in this feeling, but then I realize that I go, wait a second, no, there are other parents whose kids are also well-behaved in public who also are just as aggravated and want to go nuts about what their kids do. And I knew this because on Saturday we had the wonderful pleasure of hanging out with WizKid Jr. and First Lady. Unfortunately, um, Wiz could not be there, but next time he will. But um, we had 
a good time on a Santa thing, and it was just pretty funny that, you know, but the point is that Wiz Jr. is the same way, like, in public as far as just being well-behaved or whatever, not being a brat, not running around, not just yelling and screaming and all this craziness, which a lot of kids do in public. So in public, they're pretty well-behaved, but then in private, I know the things that we oh share with that want our heads to explode, because <laughs> what I was laughing about was... And this will transition back to you was real quick and we'll wrap it up was that when we shared the pictures in our little group um, <laughs> we were laughing about how Wiz so we were trying to get uh, uh, Junior Wiz Junior <laughs> to look up at the picture at us and he had this candy cane and he was just focused on it and his eyes were on it and he just didn't give an F about anybody he's like fuck y'all I am <laughs> I'm all this, about this candy cane yeah this candy cane and like like oh first lady all of us like come on look up <laughs> Junior look up Wiz Junior look nope. up look up and he didn't give a, I mean, you talk about not budging, dude. It was just, just like, okay. So anyway, Gosh. but, you know, but even, so that, and I remember you basically, right? What did you say? Was you yeah. like, I don't want to hear about it. Leave me alone. I, I was laughing. Something I found I, was, I could tell you were like, fuck that. That irritates me to shit. I was like, it's the same. I was like, basically, he's like his dad. When he gets in a new, so this is how it is. It's a new situation. He knows the people, but it's a new situation. He's like, mm, I don't really know what's going on here. I'm just going to stand back and stare at these people for a while. So that's I like that one well, thing I do like about him, actually. It <laughs> takes him a while to warm up. We went to this Christmas party. He got, at first he was just like staring at all the other kids. It's like a family thing. Then eventually, mm. next thing you know, by the end of the night, he's out there on the dance floor just dancing around with dad. So. He's like me. It takes him a while to get warmed up. Once he feels like you're cool, he's okay with you as well. That's how I am. Even with my friends, I know a good amount of people, but I only have like a few small sets of friends that I actually do stuff yeah. with, talk to on a regular basis. So that yeah, is father. Like father, like son for sure, man. Yes, but yeah, sir. it was a pleasure. It was fun, man. Love that kid. All right, uh, let me set the time. We all right, three minutes or so on that one. Moving right along. Mm -hmm. So. I heard this, and I'm actually going to report it from, I heard this on NPR. I love NPR because I feel like similar to us, there's nobody backing them. Mm -hmm. There's nobody who's saying you need to report this way or that way. It's all publicly funded. So And not saying don't report on this. Right, yeah, and tell them not what to and what not, not to say. To. So that's why I love listening to NPR because it's all basically donations. So they say they just go report the facts. This is what it is. So basically out of California, there's a lawsuit coming um or they came today to challenge the use of standardized tests for getting into college um Yay. basically they provide no meaningful information about the student's ability to succeed some of this are direct quotes from the article which we will link so the arguments this is unconstitutional even in addition to that research has also shown that and this is, I'm going to quote this, SAT scores are strongly linked to family income and a student's yeah. academic record, regardless of what school they attended, does a far better job of predicting college success. So let me break that down for you. If you can afford to pay for tutors and for classes for your students to learn how to game the SAT, they will score better. Once you get into school, what makes you more successful is actually how well you did in school. It has nothing to do with your scores on the SAT and no matter what controls for whatever school you went to. So I actually am a very good test taker, but I still agree with this. These tests are stupid. I just happen yep. to be very good at, remember, at patterns and, rec and doing this. So Yeah, yeah. and somebody like me who is always 
sucked at those tests. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And yeah, clearly, yeah. You know, we are here. We've made. You know, we're not. We're not masters of the universe. We don't want to be, but we're fine, right? We've made it as much as you can pushing 40. So that's my whole thing. Where I'm like, okay, so my. I'll gladly say, what did I get? I got a 580. So no, no, yeah, GMAT. I think it was some mm-hmm. ridiculous something yeah. like that. 580. I think it was my GMAT and. My SAT was a 1050. Thankfully, my ACT was higher. Why? Why? Because what did the ACT do? do? ACT do? It was just a straight up math and science test. Just facts. Ah. There were answers. <laughs> End of that story. Helps. Like that, a test like you would in school. definitely helps. Yeah. yeah. And oh, oh, was it a coincidence? No, of course not. That a good student would do better on an ACT? Anyway, so that, all that stuff. So to me, it's just a giant FU. And especially, I'm going to go ahead and call them out. I'm going to do a giant, gigantic two- Big giant middle fingers up to Wharton because those fucking assholes <laughs> were so snobby about my GMAT, dude. It was, you're great, you're blah, 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 we just need you to whatever. And you know why? Because they had already got, they'd already let in their low GMAT quota was already oh, filled. Oh, the quota. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So they had already let, let their standard, oh, we let some people in with the low GMAT so they can sit there and, and bullshit that they, that they don't care so much about it. But meanwhile, they were hammering home that if I could just get it above 620, then I'd get in. Like, are you fucking kidding me? This is because that, that would make me succeed better, right? Yeah. So this takes me back to... So also, um, the yeah. two of us were actually on a panel recently at the school that we went to. Oh, great. Uh, and we were talking about something. Uh, we're ta- oh, we're talking about this exact same thing and how the school that we went to actually did a great job of understanding what the impact of... GMAT scores are you want to talk about that um when it comes to native English speakers yeah dude that was my main point um you know wrecking my brain because we were down lower on the panel right so we don't want to just say what the other four people had already said so I was like (laughs) all right what am I going to say and I was like then I'm glad that popped into my head because um the organizer I don't want to say her name she beforehand she was like you know what are you going to talk about I was like I don't know I was going to talk about something (laughs) I I think I was going to talk about sustainability and like how that was a big part of it which which was which mattered to me too but not but the primary thing like I like the school's focus on sustainability um Versus other, you know, purely capital, make money, destroy the world, don't matter, business schools. Anyway, um, to your point, um, yeah, th- for the first time ever, I was, what, 26 years old, 27 years old um, interviewing. No one had ever, ever brought up, ever asked me that question of, are your parents Eng- native English speakers? And I was like, no. She goes, all right, we don't even think about the gym at then. Don't worry about it. Like, this is more about everything else. And I was like, wow. And I just, my, my shoulders relaxed and it was the best interview you could have. Why? Because of that thing that I knew was the weakness. Did it matter? And I was told it wasn't matter because of my background. So that in itself, doesn't that fact in itself just disqualify that? If you could just be like, it doesn't matter, then why did you make me take the test? <laughs> so anyway. <laughs> that's, um, that's another one. The fact yeah. that she said yeah, that, yeah. I was just like, yeah. damn, there you go. So that was huge, man. So and the same thing with the law school. My LSAT, uh, you know, for 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 that law school, the LSAT should have been in the in the mid one sixties, lower mid one sixties, well up to you know like up to one sixty. Anyway, it's it's at a one eighty. Um, you know, it's a top thirty law school. I got a one fifty two or one fifty one or something like that on that one. Um, and in many ways, that's the same thing. Like the 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 stuff that had to do with the grammar and whatever, that's where I, my weakness was at the end there. But yet, it had absolutely no bearing on how good of an attorney I was because my writing is freaking has been is is on point with anybody's. So here we go. Anyway, 
Yeah, so, it, I mean, it's, it's, it comes full circle back. So there's been plenty of studies done about, like, SAT and ACT and how they are essentially racist and mm-hmm. speak to people and obviously, like, native, native speakers. So ultimately, once again, wealthy native English speakers are the beneficiaries of this. If you're wealthy and can pay for someone to do this and or English speakers, so just to be cut through the cock out here, basically white people. White folks, it's true. Yeah, it's white true people, non like non immigrant white people, are the ones who benefit mostly from the shocking. That's how that's the ones who get into college from uh, a metric that has been from proven a metric to that's not, been proven exactly. Because it's one thing if it actually did matter, and you know, yes. then we then could we could be talking about something else. But that doesn't even matter. So there you go. So well, what's the point of the test? Isn't it to just what exclude like everything yeah. else? And it's funny, ironically or coincidentally, I think is the correct term, is California system was the first one to start using um, standardized tests. So, (laughs) and then, and then what happened basically the rest of the nation just was like, well, if they're doing it and they're a big state, we should do it too. And they're smart states. So, so hopefully, from my, from my perspective, hopefully the same happens here. Like they've already... You know, at least I think 50 schools around the nation who don't even ask for it or disregard it. So hopefully this and California's system is a massive Stanford system. was one of the first two, and they're yeah. separate from the California system. Stanford's yeah. private, and Stanford, um, I think they've already stopped using GMAT. They don't use right. They don't use GMAT anymore. So yeah. it's something that I hope continues to do this. And the, you know, it like going back to the point. Yeah, it's it's just continues to further the gap between the have and the have nots. While you're continuing to be like, pull yourself up by, by your bootstraps. Oh, wait, you yeah. don't have any boots to have your bootstraps on, but we've got, look at all this money we got to pay to learn how to game this test that has yeah. no... You could be a straight-A student and have a low yeah. SAT score and not get into a top school. Yeah, or you could be a C student and then your mom, your daddy oh. and your mom paid, paid somebody to teach you how to... And it's literally, yeah. having taken the um, GMAT course... Let me go ahead and cancel this. Uh, having taken the GMAT course and raised my score by like 100 points, it literally was like, this is how they wrote the test. This is how you should answer it. Did the same thing for my PMP. It was by the people who wrote the test. They can, so, it's, so that's another thing. It's a clear racket of we're going to yeah. write this test and make you take it and charge you to take it and charge you to teach you how to take it. So yep. it's like oh, literally it's we're, just, we're just teaching you how to take a test. Like anyway. So that's yeah. That's, we're teaching you how to take the test. You're not learning shit. That's yeah, the point. yeah, yeah. Teaching you how to yeah. take it, and then we're gonna charge you money on both ends and keep making a whole bunch of money. So and if you don't have the money, you're gonna get the lower score. Yep. So I was <laughs> even listening to this on a different podcast this morning. Um, mm-hmm. I always listen to. I listened to. I think it was this morning, the Tony mm-hmm. Kornheiser show. Mm-hmm. Uh, immediately, this takes you back to like Aunt Becky. Mm-hmm. And that whole case in Cali, like, yeah, you're paying to get into school. But, and we definitely, you know, we had an episode we speculated and talked about how that is. But we do realize we're not quite experts in the educational field. We know some stuff. So we're yeah. going to actually revisit episode 41 to hear from some actual ec- educational experts, you know, as opposed to just, you know, two complaining dads, basically. So <laughs> after you hear our voices and we peace out, get ready to be blessed again by Leah Cruci. Christopher Roskowski and Janice Jones, um, who will then discuss more about education and you can understand what their thoughts are and how to make the system better. Before we get to those fine folks, we'll take a quick break. 
and a word from our sponsor. Hey, Cutters, just a little bit of information about our three guests today. Leah Cruzy joins us from Washington, D.C., where she heads as founder and CEO, Allies for Educational Equity, a nonpartisan, peer-funded political action committee. Prior to AEE, Leah served in the policy office at the U.S. Department of Education under the Obama administration, following five years working in advocacy, policy, and politics at the state and local levels nationally between Students First and Democrats for Education Reform. She launched her career as a classroom educator through Teach for America in the San Francisco Bay Area. She received a BA from Claremont McKenna College and her master's degree in public policy from the Harris School at the University of Chicago. She serves on the boards of the Center for Supportive Schools, Silver Bay YMCA of the Adirondacks and the D.C. Public Charter School Board. She and her husband have two children. Christopher Ruskowski joins us from Santa Fe, New Mexico. He is the former Secretary of Education for the state of New Mexico, where he served under Republican Governor Susana Martinez. Before that, he spent six years working on President Obama's Race to the Top initiative under Democrat Governor Jack Markell in Delaware. He's a member of the Bipartisan Chiefs for Change and an advisory board member for Results for America and Harvard's Center for Public Education Policy Research. And he's currently a Distinguished Policy Fellow at Stanford University. He earned his Master's in Education Policy and Leadership from Stanford, and he attended undergrad at the University of Minnesota on an Evans Scholarship, a privately funded full tuition college scholarship for students from working class backgrounds. He began his career in education as a middle school teacher, school, uh, excuse me, a middle school social studies teacher in Miami, Florida. And Janice Jones, she's been a staunch advocate for educational equality and advocacy for over 16 years. She is a graduate of Clark Atlanta University with a major in political science and minor in music performance. After a successful 12 years in the classroom, her passion for political service led her to elected office in 2012 in our nation's capital as an ANC commissioner. In 2018, she ran for state delegate MD32 and served as campaign manager for County Councilwoman Sarah Lacey, successfully winning the seat. She co-founded Faith Leaders for Excellent Schools, an education advocacy organization based in Baltimore. Prior to accepting that role, she served as executive director of Maryland CAN and was an education policy advisor fellow at the U.S. Department of Education under former Secretary Arne Duncan. She is a currently working in Anne Arundel County, Maryland, as the constituent and community engagement officer for the newly elected county executive. We are ecstatic to have these three industry heavyweights with us, and we hope you enjoy the conversation. All right, welcome, Cutter. Back, as promised, we have a great topic for today. We're going to talk more about education, but thankfully for you guys, you don't get just get to hear me and the counselors talk about it. We've got some people who actually know education. Um, so as mentioned before, we're going to have Leah, Christopher, and Denise talk about a few topics that we have. Um, so we'll just go ahead and get started. So when you say the words college admission scandal, I think most people know what's going on, what's been in the news. There's been uncovered, I think, around 50 people who have been paying for various consulting services, air quotes, to get their kids in school. Uh, the most notorious are Felicity Huffman, who has pleaded guilty, said she was wrong, and for her $15,000 and just gonna do whatever they throw at her. The other are Lori Laughlin and her husband, who are now saying they are not guilty that of their $500,000 donation to a charity which did things to get their child uh, children into school. And I think their defense is they knew it was breaking the rules but didn't think it was illegal. So. 
we have our thoughts on it. We kind of shared those. We'd love to get you guys started. Then we're going to start with uh, Leah and then go to Christopher and Janice. And, you know, we'll, we'll just go from there and see how the show goes. Leah, you want to go ahead? All right. Yeah, thanks for thanks for having me on. This is, I mean, the kind of parallel shocks of unfairness, crazy privilege, and then at the same time, how so many of us were also like not surprised. So, from from where I sit, working in education. And policy, politics, advocacy, it kind of underscored for me this reminder that a great college education really matters. Folks are willing to go to crazy extent to somehow just set their kids apart. And those who have privilege feel like the rules don't necessarily apply to them. At the same time, it also reminded me of parents who don't have that privilege who are doing and have done whatever they feel, whatever they're able to do to better position their kids and have moved, have changed addresses, have in some cases gotten arrested for having to change addresses or use someone else's address just to try to get their kid into a better system. And in their case, they're told legally you have to send your kid to school but you have to go to this one school that you're zoned into that's not doing well. So it brings me back to the the injustice of our of our K-12 system. Christopher, any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think Lisa said it right. I mean, I think when you look at the way that um, the rich operate, I mean, this is this is ultimately a story about entitlement and about corner cutting and about potentially illegality. But when you when you look at the way that folks that have means operate, you can you can sort of learn a lot about what has value. And I think Leah said it right, like a college education has immense value. And some of the mythology that runs through our society around, well, you don't need to go to college, it, it, that there's there's some truth to that. Um, you know, the, the mythology around, well, you know, the Bill Gates of the world dropped out their freshman year. So therefore, um, you can you can sort of make it and, and get rich without going to college. Like all of the data and all the statistics show exactly the opposite. They show just how important uh, lifelong earning potential uh, lifelong success, ability to own your own home, ability to save, save, save money, save resources, raise a family, <clears throat> just how much easier that is uh, when you have a college education. And so when you look at their behavior, um, which is, which is just, you know, laden with entitlement, there's also something about just how important that is. Uh, you know, I started out my career as a, uh, as a middle school teacher in, in North Miami, uh, Dade, North Miami, Dade, Florida, working with kids that were mostly first and second generation immigrants that were going above and beyond uh, and, and trying to overcome really difficult odds uh, to get to the same place um, uh, that, that, you know, Lori Laughlin uh, was trying to get to via cheating. And, um, and my students were trying to do it the right way, uh, buying into uh, the premise of meritocracy, 
And I think it's dangerous if we if we move away from that premise. We want that to still be the central idea that this is about hard work and this is about, you know, um, this is about in some ways like the ability to, to demonstrate competency. Uh, but I think what, what we've learned in the last couple of weeks is that uh, those with means will do whatever it takes uh, to get to get this to get access to the slots that are that are scarce. And I'd say that's my that'd be the other point that I'd, I think I'd want to make is that there has to be a world where high quality seats, if you will, at the college level, at the high school level, and all through the the pre-K to, to 20 system, we have to figure out a way for those, if you will, for those premier seats to be less scarce. Uh, that is to say there needs to be hundreds of thousands of colleges and universities that are offering a world-class education. It, we can't live in a world where where there is a belief or even a, a reality to the fact that there's only a hundred schools that offer a world-class uh, college education. So there, there is a, a fundamental scarcity issue at play that is making, um, in this case, the rich and the privileged operate the way that they are. Uh, yeah, that's great points. And I think some of that will get us to our next topic of conversation. We would like to hear from Denise next before we move on to round this one out. Yes. I mean, again, and thank you guys for having me on the show. I think um, what's been said is, is very clear. I mean, as we think about, you know, all that's happening, you know, you made a good point, Chris, that you talk about students that you taught. I mean, I taught in St. Louis, um, Missouri, way back when I taught for 12 years. I remember students catching multiple buses to get to high quality schools. And then, you know, their whole goal was to make sure they could, you know, graduate from school and go to a good college, you know. So when we, we start to look at the principles and the morals and the values, um, that are all at stake here. And as, as students are, are watching this happen, it's really disheartening. So it'd be interesting to see um, long-term the effects of this, but I, I think overall, uh, just those of us in the field, you know, we have to continue to encourage students who are, who are trying to do it the right way, who are going to school, who are trying to do everything that they've been taught to do, right? And now you look at what money can do. Um, and, and, and so we're just hopeful that this can certainly um, it, it can change in a way that this this particular behavior behavior can change, but ultimately we don't want to have you know students who are you know first generation college students such as myself say you know well this is a waste of my time. Why am I even putting the effort forward? So I'm hopeful that this doesn't scare a lot of students away who you know may have never thought about college and you know we want them to go to school. We want them to have successful careers. We want them to be able to thrive in society. So it'll just be interesting to see. How it plays out. You know, one of the things before we move on that that that, that stands out to me is what does that also say about um, what universities are actually teaching? In the sense that if you can basically buy your way into it, then is it only for the purpose of prestige to just say that I went to this college, or does it prove that perhaps colleges also need to step up what it is that they're actually teaching? Or you know what I mean? Because if you could just buy your way into Harvard and then you got your degree which clearly means that if you weren't qualified to be there and then, you know, once you got there, it just mattered that you got the degree and you went on to move on to some other job, then what does that say about, you know what I mean? Like whether or not it really is just a piece yeah. of paper or like, you know, do colleges themselves also need to kind of have a reality check and say, wait a second, if people can just buy themselves in here, what are we really teaching? If it doesn't make a difference whether you earned your way in or not, do you know what I mean? Right. 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 This is Leah. I mean, this is, uh, they're, 
the three of us come from K-12, but we all know like the, our kids of all, we, we know we need to get them to a place where they're going to be able to choose to be successful, like choose access and get into the best college that they can get into and or be ready for the life that they want to lead and be successful. And the kind of accountability for that we've all been part of in K-12 needs to be extended further into higher ed. It happens to be that Congress is seeking to reauthorize the Higher Education Act right now. And there's a whole lot of accountability and improvement that needs to happen in the higher ed. Feeling that colleges need to be held accountable so that the their students are truly prepared for life afterward. Um, all that Christopher said is 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 right. Like the data show that those who have a college degree, their lifetime earnings are way higher. All all the indicators of success in life are much higher. But schools also need to know that the the first gen using just for example first gen college uh, entrance some institutions are doing a really great job of graduating those students some institutions are not doing as good a job with that and so starting to scratch the surface there is revealing all kinds of interesting and important insights for how we improve policy um, at the higher ed level post-secondary level here uh, to the to the point that was made is that um, grade inflation is rife throughout the entire system, um, beginning with our kids as early as pre-K and kindergarten, and certainly through the college experience. I mean, I think the point is well taken. If you can, if you can find a backdoor into an institution, one would certainly hope, whether it be through an illegal or legal means, one would certainly hope that. Uh, your true competency and your true potential shows through in those freshman year classes. And as a result, it becomes clear that either significant remediation and support is needed or that you actually, uh, as a young person, can't cut it at that at that level, which could be another way that um, that some of this fraud could have been exposed. But unfortunately, um, and I don't know, I know we can go here later. One of the reasons that I became a believer both as a teacher and as a policymaker, one of the reasons I became a believer in uh, in annual assessment, often referred to as, as standardized testing, is because that was becoming one of the few places where it wasn't totally subjective, where where A's weren't being handed out. And so part of the problem that we have too right now in our, in our low-income communities is kids being named valedictorian and still not being prepared for the rigors uh, of college and university. This was highlighted um, in, in, in a recent paper called The Opportunity Myth. Like, so there's, there's, a, there's a grade inflation issue that in many ways is, is creating the context by which people are looking for a different edge in the way that Felicity Huffman and, and company were looking for a different edge because the, the grades that kids <laughs> are earning have become have become less and less meaningful over the last several decades. Yeah, the, the uh, one thing I will say, and I've heard this argument, not saying that you guys are making it um, at all, but is if somebody cheated and got in, but they still, you know, able to make the grades and progress, does that make it like validate that actually they probably should have got in? And I don't think that's the case specifically 
because of you know for Harvard, five percent of people get in. I'm sure the next five percent down from that, like the you know one through five got in, and five six to ten. I'm sure they actually probably could make it at Harvard, but the point is they aren't the best and should not have gotten in there. Um, so that that's the one thing that I think like yeah, if, if you look at just like okay, some people didn't get weeded out, so that means that proves that they probably should have gotten in. That's not necessarily the case. Just <laughs> you know, doing job interviews, there's probably 20 people apply, only one gets the job. I'm sure there's a couple who probably could have done it, but they didn't, you know, they just didn't make the cut or shouldn't have. Um, but I think, Christopher, you brought up a good point, and every, everybody actually talked about this. It starts well before college. And it goes back to K-12 and, you know, making sure the right resources are there and, like, how do we, um, how do we provide financing for these schools? And I know on some of our, our chats beforehand, council and I were talking about our grand idea of, you know, you just put all the money in one big pot instead of the tax money just being saying everybody from this wealthy community puts all their tax money in just the wealthy community pot and goes to those schools who have the best facilities, the best sports and everything because they have tons of tax money and then all of the lower income have much less money. So that ends up making a massive income disparity we say just put it all in one pot and give it out by whoever has, you know, however many students you have, you get X amount of dollars per student to give everyone a base level education, which was talked about. Like, how do you to get everyone to have a, a, the same level of education, whether it's more colleges on the same level, more K through 12 on the same level? Um, that was our grand idea. But just wanted to get your thoughts on that, because I think you had some pretty interesting, um, some pretty interesting things to say. Christopher. Yeah, I'll, I'll I'll lead off. I mean, I think um, would love to hear what it looks like out on on the East Coast, how this is playing out there. Uh, you know, out here out here in the Mountain West, uh, I'm in, you know, I'm in Santa Fe, uh, in New Mexico, where the the system that you just described um, is is the New Mexico. Uh, is the New Mexico funding formula hmm. uh, in in yeah in New Mexico since about 1977? Uh, the state has had something called the state equalization guarantee, where not one cent of a well, I should say not one cent, with the exception of facilities. Facilities is the one place where we still have some inequity uh, here in New Mexico, but as it pertains to the basic per pupil funding that is generated on a per student uh, basis. All of the state's money goes into one, it doesn't happen quite this simplistically, but all of the different revenue streams go into one big kitty. And then that uh, amount in New Mexico, that's about $3 billion statewide. That $3 billion is distributed using what we call the, the SEG, the state equalization guarantee. And so a kid that has more need, whether because of income or because of uh, disability um, or because of it being a part of a, a historically underrepresented group, the kids with more need generate more dollars. And so in New Mexico, um, while the average per pupil is is in the middle of the country, we're hanging out around uh, eleven or twelve thousand dollars per kid now, the the kid that lives uh, in the heart of the South Valley of Albuquerque, uh, that happens to be uh, low income and Hispanic and also have a disability, like like that that child is generating, 
let's say 14, 15,000. Whereas the, the kid in, uh, the suburbs, uh, who comes from means who does not have some of those, uh, challenges or, or has not, is not part of a historically disenfranchised group is generating, you know, $7,500. And so New Mexico does have that system, you know, without going too far into detail, it, it has not created, uh, um, utopia. Um, there are still a lot of other challenges in terms of management, in terms of policy, in terms of practice. But I do think New Mexico is one place where we can look to, to say, if that's the ideal, there is a state that is doing it that way. Mm, so yes, yeah, so this is good to know. Go ahead. Now, I was going to say, so in Maryland, here in Maryland, um, you know, there has been a lot of dialogue over the past few years around a report um, we call the Kerwin Commission, um, which is essentially the blueprint, if you will, for Maryland's future as it relates to transforming the educational system. And so, um, you know, it, I think the, it's well-intentioned, I mean, in terms of providing evidence-based, you know, like recommendations for what, what could really be in terms of an equitable framework. But, you know, as we look at what's at stake for students of color, particularly Black and Latino students, um, we wonder whether or not this particular, you know, push will really, really pan out, you know, and in that way. And then we look at, you know, 60% of Maryland students are unable to meet college and career readiness standards. That's a problem, you know, but yet some of them have straight A's, you know. So we t- when you just talk about inflation, when we talk about funding formulas, when we talk about all these things, what is at stake for those students who are generally, in many cases, often, you know, cast to the side um, and don't really get the funding that's necessary, it, or it doesn't trickle down to them. I'll just say that there are lots of uh, things that play a lot of red tape. So it doesn't really trickle down to the students per se in a way that really shows, um, you know, outcomes. So in Maryland, there are a number of things happening as it relates to um, how that works. And um, there was a group, the Maryland Alliance for Racial Equity and Education, to which I was a part of uh, co-founding the number of organizations. We really pushed that commission to really look deeper, you know, at that you know, the, the data that they had and we, hey, listen, we had data too. And it's like, how is this going to actually play out financially down the road over the next decade? Because this is this bill that, that, that passed our legislature this year essentially will fund um, all 24 jurisdictions in the state of Maryland for the next 10 years. So, you know, it's important to have people at the table who really understand what, what the funding formula should be, but also how are we looking at equity around race as well? Leah, do you have anything to add? So uh, my, my thinking on this kind of starts from this place of traditionally we've thought about funding and policy in terms of inputs. Here are the things you need to put in in order to get the kind of outcomes you want. And the my, my kind of exposure and my work in education has challenged me and therefore me when I work with others to reorient our thinking around outcomes. So I want to make sure that I, I come from the place where I believe that learning matters and that every kid has limitless capacity. So if I know that every kid has the potential to do amazing things and that we need them to be able to reach their full potential, like our world actually needs that. We need more medicines to be invented, we need more bridges to be built, uh, then the, all the systems that we have in place to educate kids to run this country and run this world need to be oriented toward 
supporting kids to get there. And so getting back to school financing, we've got this massively decentralized system in our country. So we've got the federal government, we've got state governments, we've got local government, and education wasn't written into the United States Constitution. So the way governance for education has been established has been in this very decentralized manner. Funding has similarly followed suit. So the federal federal funding for public education actually only shakes out to about, I think it works out to about 10% per people dollars. That's right. And those Title I dollars for the most at-risk kids and communities are supposed to supplement local dollars, not supplant them. And that's that's something that we'd worked on with the Obama administration that to remind communities that these dollars that are intended for concentrate areas of concentrated poverty are meant to add on to all the dollars that the state and locality have committed for those kids. Not to, we say supplement, not supplant SNS, but very, very often that's in fact what's happening. So there's a sense that the state doesn't actually have to put in as much because the feds will pay, pay the bill. Now, are you, because um, I know that right away uh, some folks, their red flags go off as far as, you know, are, are you saying that, that education should be federalized as opposed to, because you know that right away there's a lot of folks, um, and I think, you know, even political parties that feel very strongly about, you know, leave it to the states, leave it to the states. Um, are you a proponent of federalizing education? In that sense of saying that, that, that they, you know, in the sense that the, that D.C. would um, set essentially, you know, the, the, the highest of standards for all the states and then, look, would you switch it around basically and say the feds should be the ones who are providing and then the states should be supplanting? I mean, uh, not supplanting, uh, supplementing. I'm, I'm not suggesting changing really. The, what, what we want is, so we want accountability for the dollars that we spend. So way back in the kind of landmark education law in, uh, in the 60s, the original Elementary and Secondary Education Act is an established a sense of, um, of accountability and major funding for public education. That doesn't, even then, that wasn't the majority of per pupil dollars. Um, the law that I think probably this group is going to be more familiar with is what was passed, I think it was in 2002, it's called No Child Left Behind. Um, and what I think is not widely known is that the civil rights groups were actually a really important part of getting that law passed because prior to that point, data, uh, performance data on schools was kind of lumped together and it was really easy for schools to sweep under the rug how they were doing to support their most at-risk kids, often kids of color, uh, low-income kids. And that, that law required data to be disaggregated by subgroup. So we could actually see how kids were doing by subgroup. And that's by race, ethnicity, special needs, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Obviously, some aspects of that were too blunt, and the the law that was passed, uh, the reauthorization of ESE a couple of years ago, it's called ESSA now, put a lot more power back into state hands with with defining what their state plan is 
to improve outcomes for all, all kids and also do so um, at a more granular level than just at the district level. So that was a long way of answering your question to say, yeah. no, the states are, we, we have this federal system to, because we have these like amazing different laboratories and everything is so contextualized in our country. Um, back to what I was saying about kind of thinking in terms of outcomes as opposed to inputs. We, there is innovation labs or how to create schools and how to generate learning and do so in different ways that we want to kind of set free educators to um, to know where we need to get kids, but create lots of different ways to get there. So be accountable. The adults should be held accountable for getting kids to where we need them to be, which is college or career ready, but map your own way to get there. Okay. I, I would just, I would just, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, please go ahead, Chris. I would just, I would just add on, on this idea of the federal role. Um, Lee is right. It's a small percent of the budget, percent of the budget. I said before, New Mexico is a $3 billion system. Only 300 million of that, about 10% came from the Fed. So I, I do think that, I do think that there is going to be a role over the next decade for the federal government to increase the amount of dollars um, that go to students uh, in low-income communities, whether rural or urban. I do think that's true. And one of the reasons I think that they have to do that um, isn't isn't just because more money can be helpful, because I think you're hearing a, a, mixed, a little bit of a mixed bag on that tonight. But I think I think it's because that's also their their window into into having more oversight. You know, part of why the federal government right now and why the federal government in the past, you know, decade or so has not always been able to um, intervene when 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 injustice is happening is because they don't have uh, some of the sticks. If, if all they can do is is threaten, you know, three percent of your budget, uh, then states like Texas say. You know, okay, they'll they'll play chicken on on three percent, and so um, I do think the federal government probably needs to exercise more oversight than it's exercising right now. And one way to do that is to is to increase funding so that it has a little bit more a little bit more uh, skin in the game when they need to intervene in a particular state or locality. You know, perfect example of when that can work really well was in two thousand nine, when we're coming, we've got. Harper economy's reeling, and um, Secretary Duncan and his team introduced Race to the Top, which offered this kind of a powerful combination of resources and accountability. And states had to come up with, had to pass their own laws and show how they were going to, um, to, to, to produce results, open up opportunity. Um, they, it have to be decided by states, um, but what would come with it is a whole lot of insertion of new dollars from the federal government. So that the the combination of um, additional resources, which tends to motivate people and groups to find alignment, um, but with accountability, where the federal government saying here are, here are ways that you can uh, create opportunity, create innovation, but you need to be held accountable for. Um, for ensuring that kids are actually learning. 
Yeah, going along that line, I was looking at, um, you know, we talked about along the lines of accountability um, for performance, um, and I think that the necessary tie to financing. We talked about, you know, in a previous life, uh, tech life, um, a long time ago in New York City, they had these things called um, city stat for police officers, and then we implemented um, part of what I did was this thing called job stat, which was where you <laughs> measured the performance of, have you folks heard about any of these initiatives? Yes, sir. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, sir. So, yeah. so, so yeah. it's just um, yeah. so my my old tech nerd comes out and says this is kind of the same idea, right? Um, except we're applying that to um, this to teachers and and administrators, etc. Um, is is that kind of what we're looking at? Where you have a spreadsheet that basically has categories for folks listening. It's pretty much you know uh, performance metrics to to make sure. For example, with jobs that we're talking about uh, folks in job centers. Um, so if you need assistance to find a job. We were measuring basically how the folks at the job centers were performing themselves in order to make sure that, you know, all the policies being implemented were working correctly, et cetera. Um, that's what we're talking about, right? Yeah, I mean, I'll just say really, really briefly, and then Janice and Leah take it away, is I think I think that it is fair to say that many state and local school systems around the country are not are not well managed. Right. So when we talk about research, we talk about funding. You also talk about execution and implementation. And I think we have a, a, a fairly big implementation challenge across the country. And what you're suggesting that the Comstat, the city stat, the deliverology, if you will, is something that I think some districts and states have found success, success using. Okay. Yeah. Because, I, I, you know, I've always kind of hoped that that would be something that could be. I mean, as far as, with, you know, my three years of experience within there, you know, we saw some really, you know, wonderful results with that um, as far as yeah. how the folks were, were being served out at the job centers. So hopefully, you know, we'll see we'll see more more of that. Janice. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I, I think that it's, you know, have all of us have been teachers. Right? The three of us have been teachers. <clears throat> it's always interesting because as when we talk about accountability, you know, to some people. It's, it, it 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 produces this level of like anxiety because you know you have this quantitative and then qualitative and we, anyone who's taught for any period of time you know you can show the quantitative stuff but there are certain things that just will never be able to show up in like that report you know and so it's 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 really a catch twenty two sometimes when you look at the the day in the life of a teacher the day in the life of a student in an urban school suburban school rural school whatever that there are a number of things going on and how do you really show that? Like, how do you really show the successes? Maybe this, this student didn't, you know, make it to the next, well, well, didn't, you know, whatever. Maybe he came in at a low grade reading level or whatever, and then he didn't jump by two grade levels, like some astronomical thing. Maybe he did make gains, but it wasn't enough for that teacher to get the quote unquote high marks that they should, but the teacher still worked to make the gains. So those of us who've been on the other side, I think sometimes <clears throat> for some of the teachers that I've been around, you hear conversations and it's just like, oh my God, we have this, this system, you know? So, and, and again, like I said, it's not managed well. So you have people who fudge data. Let's just keep it 100. Like people do that because they know, okay, let me like make this look a certain way because I know my principal or my, you know, district, they look at certain things. And that is, that is again, the, the challenge because, what is the accuracy there? I mean, we're, we're teaching students. We're trying to build young people to be great adults, you know? So at the end of the day, it just becomes this whole maze of foolishness unless it's it's really monitored in the right way. 
Um, that's just me. I'm just being honest. I mean, I, I, I think it does. And I don't know, if, Leah, if you want to chime in, but in your experience, yeah. Um, yeah, just curious. Yeah. Yeah, I, I have two thoughts to build on both of what you guys have said. I mean, one is, so who are, who are the customers here in the, in the kind of comp stat, whatever the, the, those examples, you've got this, um, it, it's pretty clear that it's like this dashboard looking from kind of the centralized city, municipal government management perspective. I think I'm, I'm think as I, especially as I do more and more of this work and as I get older and my kids are approaching school age, I'm thinking in terms of what parents are looking for. And our job is in policy is to inform our customers who are the parents to be able to make good info, make good decisions for what's going to be best for their kid and know what gaps there are for their kids so that we, they and their teachers can, schools can work together to close those gaps so their kids are ready for college and career. So the, from the accountability perspective, we need to make sure we're capturing good information and we're able to convey it in a meaningful way. So that means it needs to be simple, but also meaningful. And find striking that balance in any kind of data management situation is always challenging, but it's incredibly important in education. The second thought is remembering about the who's, who matters here. We're thinking about supporting young people to reach their full potential. When I was doing advocacy um, in education policy in years past, I remember a lawmaker saying to me, well, what if a teacher has, has a bunch of bad blueberries? And this sounds insane when I repeat it, but there was actually something a teacher's union was circulating around, mm-hmm. like making blueberry ice cream or something. And what if a baker is given a bad batch of blueberries? It's not the baker's fault he got bad blueberries. <laughs> I'm sure I'm pushing the example, but it's that crazy. Yeah. I look at this lawmaker and I'm like, hold on. I care about those blueberries are children you're talking about. Wow. So, Commoditized so children. Yeah. That's- so, but it's so, and, and uh, this lawmaker was not a bad person, but they had, th- there's these heuristics that are just kind of easy on the brain to just take in and say, of course. You don't want to screw the ice cream maker or the baker or whoever it was in the situation. But sometimes we have to flip it and say, but we're not in it for the baker. We're in it for the kids. And you're calling the kids a bunch of blueberries and you're saying some of them are no good. So you're just going to give up on them. It's not a good analogy. I agree. No, I, can I just jump in there? I, that, that's really solid what you're saying. I, I think sometimes when you look at data or for a parent gets something in the backpack, it's like a scatter plot. Like who's looking at a scatter plot like i mean we will but like the general parent of a fourth grade child it's like look i have 90 things going on yeah. i just need to be able to look at clear basic information about what's happening i think sometimes it's so high level by design and it feel like people some parents and i'll just say it, it in in many school systems it's, it's just the unspoken or elephant in the room that you know maybe parents you know of certain means care more than parents who you know, may not be of those means. And so I, it's it's just me having been in this field for almost 17 years. You see a lot of things. I was a special education coordinator. So that whole level of data, all that other type of, you know, inquiry to the parents, you know, want. I mean, you just look at this stuff and you just say, like, we're really here for the students. But when you look at the bureaucracy and you see the pressure that's on teachers, you, 
you see a lot of things. I'll just say that. I won't, I won't say too much more, but you, you see a lot of things and it's, it's disheartening. We're here for students, so. That was, that was a lot and very good, good things. And I think like the more and more I talk about this, I can easily see we can just take like one of these topics and make an entire episode on it. Like it's <laughs> so many more things I want to say and I'm not, I'm just a yeah. really guy. So <laughs> I can only imagine what else we can say about that. Like I had something to talk more about like testing and using that as metrics. Um, but we'll save that for the next episode. We were going to take a quick break and then we'll come back um, to talk more about, um, I guess, some things to ways we can possibly fix this or alleviate some of the issues and some other, you know, news that are going around for this year in terms of strikes going on around the nation. So take a quick commercial break and then we'll come back and then dive into those topics. All right, all right, we're back from the break here. And um, the second half, we've talked about in the first half, I guess, some of the challenges, some of, some of the issues, this federalizing a solution, et cetera. So we're also going to talk about some other things that have come up as possible solutions or, or other ways to kind of, you know, things like elevating the teaching profession, as you're aware, um, as our listeners, you know, you have you know, Russell Wilson in football just signed a hundred and something million dollar contract, $60 million plus signing bonus. So just for signing his name on the dotted line, he's making more money than many schools and districts worth of teachers were making their entire lifetime. So that kind of tells you like what's valued most by society. And it's hard, like these are the people who without them, we won't have the future leaders of companies and future inventors and future stockbrokers, whatever it is, and future teachers and principals. So how do we, like, I don't know, how do you make this, like, elevating the teaching profession? Like, is that, one, is that a thing that will help out? And then, two, how do you actually do that? And we're going to start off with Janice for this one and then go to Leah and then uh, wrap it up with Christopher. All right, uh, take it away, Janice. Yeah, so I think, you know, elevating the teacher profession, that is certainly a task um, that many organizations, many groups, you know, nationally have, have looked at. I mean, so much research has been done. I know my, my peers will certainly share when they, when they talk, but just like, how do you do that? And I, ultimately, when we talk about a sustainable career over 20 to 30 year period, people are looking at how much are they going to get paid? And so when we look at salaries, when you look at the rate of inflation, you just look at the past 15 years. I mean, in some locales, I mean, they have not been on pace, you know, so you can, I'm just going to speak from the state of Maryland. Um, some teachers have stayed at one pay step in one particular county for five years, okay? And you have people who come in from a neighboring county and have taught less years than some of the veteran teachers and they're making way more money. So it, it you know, the morale is low. Then you have teachers coming in the schools, you know, buildings every day who are feeling like they're underpaid, overworked and underpaid. And then you want them to make these miracles happen. So that's that's generally the mindset. So I think when students start to see that the pay um, is certainly in line with, well, it's, it's changing as, you know, increasing, if you will, I feel like a lot, a lot more students. Well, I think the motivation for a lot of things these days for the generation that um, is coming up is what's in it for me. And I don't think they want to take a vow of poverty. You know, 
Now, I hate to say it that way, but and a lot of people aren't going into the profession anymore because they just they have a good heart, you know, or going and look majoring in things in college because they they want to they want to have success in their life. They want to be able to buy a home. They want to be able to do all the things and have the American dream. And it's hard to do that on the salaries that they have um, right now, unfortunately, in many in many locales. I'll say that. Now, some have have stepped up to the plate. Many you know have done that. Teachers are flocking there in droves, but the large majority, it's still, it's still, um, it's, a, it's shameful. It's, it's shameful that teachers are still struggling this way. Yeah, now I'll throw a personal anecdote here. I think I, I guess I kind of sandbagged. I'm the um, son of two educators um, and also mother-in-law is educated as well. So I can definitely attest to where I was in Virginia, the same thing. Like my mom, taught for 2030 she ended up being plus 30 plus years got a master's degree and then yeah they hired some brand new teachers who are making the same or more than her so it's like what what is the purpose of of doing this if you're gonna barely make any money and they're just gonna bring in new people and you've been doing all this half the new people come in teach for a few years and then be like okay great now that you know i've got some experience i'm gonna go do something else so you're paying all these people with not even care about the students who do teaching for a lot of them and then, I mean, when I started working, I was with no experience whatsoever, was able to make, you know, 25, 30 percent more than my mother had made yeah. at the end of her career after being a veteran teacher with multiple degrees. So it is like, how do you incent the best and the brightest to go into teaching if they're going to be vastly underpaid compared to the rest of society? It's crazy. Yeah. Uh, we'll turn it over to uh, Leah now and then uh, yeah, finish up with Christopher on this topic. So, so data show that the most influential in-school influence in student learning is the teacher in the front of the classroom. And that knowledge is kind of ground some of the, the policy and advocacy work that I worked on around teaching and um, tenure reform and pay and the thinking built uh, kind of growing from that knowledge is that if we can lockstep pay disincentivizes the highest performers to stay in the profession while also there's like an opportunity cost there of learning for kids. So kids under this, this sounds very simple because it is. Kids who have access to a really great teacher learn more. So actual, like, there are studies that show that kids are actually generating days, weeks, months more learning when they've got a really highly effective teacher. Um, And that highly effective teachers aren't necessarily the ones who've been in the classroom the longest. These kinds of findings are sound so far from the day-to-day realities of running a school. And there's also the reality that how many teachers can we think of that actually fit that simplified description when you've got teachers that may have multiple classes a day or may not be teaching a tested subject? Or so how do you actually measure it and measure it effectively? This is where the work gets, gets really complicated. Where it should be simple is we know that great teachers can have an enormous impact on kids. And we also know the if you think over over the career, like the course of someone's career, if you've got a really great teacher, that's hundreds, potentially thousands of kids who've benefited from that. How do we do 
incent more of that. Now, at the same time, over the last several years, actual take-home pay on average has gone down, and it's different um, in different states. So the reality of how much um, states and districts owe for um, for things like health care and benefits and pensions is is not even everywhere. In some places, like I think in Chicago these days, a first-time teacher is signing up to take home less than they are contributing in towards pensions that are needing to go out the door now. And it's bankrupting systems, which immediately has an impact on school budgets. It's kind of at the source of, a, of some of the strikes that we've seen around the country. But it's also not changing. It's, it's bad for the attracting the highest quality talent into the profession. So to the point that Janice made earlier, the best and the brightest don't necessarily want to become teachers now because they don't want to live a life, take a vow of poverty. Mm-hmm. So, and then you layer on a third point there, which is that the generation of young people today don't assume they're signing up for, whether it's teaching or any other profession, they're not signing up for the same profession for 30 years. The whole labor market is different now than it was 30 years ago when when our parents were, were working age and grandparents were working age, when it was much more common to get a job and kind of stay in that same job or stay in that same company for the whole course of your career. It doesn't work that way anymore. Now, do you think that it, that's, because I know, you know, especially that's definitely the case across all different types of careers. Um, within education specifically, are is the problem that teachers are going into the field and getting out of it, or is it that they're moving around, you know, to different locations? Are they still staying within education, or it's just that, you know, we're going to teach it three or four years, put it in my resume, and then go do something else? So I don't think it's necessarily bad to change jobs, mm-hmm. whether it's teaching or anything else. Um, for those who may not be the best, like this is why we need to know how well kids are learning. If coaching someone out of the career, if they're not going to be great at it, is not a bad thing. So having more than, um, having some attrition is not a bad thing. Um, now, how do we keep the best people in the profession? May actually mean not keeping them in the same job for the course of their career. It may actually mean we want to keep them teaching a class, but we actually want them to be in a coaching role so that more teachers can benefit from the mastery that they've developed. And we actually want to get them not just working around their school, but we want them to work across the whole district. So the concept of teacher leadership, um, that can be really powerful. And that can also be much more motivating for someone who's been really effective at some techniques in the classroom, but you can actually kind of have a train the trainer model there. Um, But assuming that someone needs to stay in the classroom in the same job for 30 years is that's doesn't have to be the case for everyone. And that's not necessarily the kind of paradigm that we should want for the whole teaching profession. I kind of want to toss the mic to Christopher. I feel like you're going to have some really good thoughts on this from your recent leadership roles. Yeah. I, one quick thing. Um, one, Christopher, you're going to want to unmute before you start talking. And then I do love the fact that you keep using 
properly the word data in the plural sense. That is one of my huge things, random English thing. <laughs> people, it's always interesting when people who do research are like, the data is and the data shows. And I'm like, no, the data show and are because it's actually plural. Anyway, it's random. I really, really enjoy that. <laughs> Makes me happy. <laughs> Call the whiz for nothing, folks. <laughs> but yes, we'll, we'll pass it over to Christopher now to uh, to tell us what's really going on and from his perspective. Yeah, I mean, look, talk, talk, talking about teachers, talking about the profession um, is one of the most uh, sensitive things that, that you can do. And in many ways, it has become a third rail um, of American educational politics. I, I think a couple of things are true. I think I think there's general consensus that, as Janice talked about, that starting salaries need to be higher, right? There's something to be said for the the um, the incentive that we're giving young people to choose this profession, and the com- sort of the competitiveness that the starting the starting teaching salary has to have in order to compete with the other careers. Uh, that individuals could go into once they earn that degree. So I think there's fairly universal um, agreement there amongst um, amongst policymakers on both sides of the aisle. There's also, you know, fairly it, it, as, as a fact, it's 90% of all dollars invested in education go into uh, the the workforce, go into labor costs, and so it's not as if from the existing pie that uh, that dollars are being spent on things that that are not educator salaries, right? The that literally nine cents on every dollar um, is going in is going into labor costs. And so we can talk about growing the overall size of the pie. We can talk about distributing the pie in different ways. That certainly those are certainly conversations that we've had in all of the various states, Delaware, New Mexico, uh, Florida, Louisiana, that, that I've worked in. But even if you grow the pie, it's still going to be nine cents on the dollar. It's still going to be 90% of your cost. So that what, I guess what I'm saying is there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of uh, space there. There's not a lot of daylight there to say, oh, let's, let's take money out of X and put it into Y within the education budget. You'd have to grow the total budget. It's not like, oh, we're spending too much on, um, too much on AstroTurf and not enough on teacher salaries. Like they're, they're, that, is not, that is not what's happening. Um, the third thing I would say, and, and this is how you guys started by framing the, the dialogue, is there is a battle. There is a fundamental, dare I say, war going on inside of, uh, legislatures and inside of education policy circles around what does it mean to quote unquote elevate the profession? And there are, there are a couple different camps, but I think the the two camps can be can be you know explained as such. In one camp, what folks mean is raise salaries for everyone. That's what it means to elevate the profession. Increase pay, increase flexibility, uh, give folks more planning time, um, uh, give folks more resources. That that it is essentially you can you can elevate the profession by resourcing it. The the other camp is is the camp of folks that is saying you can resources are critical and you have to resource it, but you can't elevate the profession in a world in which um, folks are locked in, as Leah shared, 
uh, folks are locked into a steps and lanes system. So even if a teacher is the equivalent of Russell Wilson to kind of go back to his, you know, 4 a.m. Instagram post this morning announcing his, his big contract, like, like even if a teacher is Russell Wilson, systems leaders and in, in pr- principals and superintendents still don't have the ability to pay that teacher like Russell Wilson, even if they wanted to. So even when you identify someone, as Leah mentioned, who is getting, you know, three years of growth in a single year, is the MVP of the school, is outstanding in their craft as proven by uh, to, to use Janice's language as to, as proven by quantitative and qualitative, even when you have identified the MVP of your school, um, it, it become it is, it is near impossible to, to reward and incentivize that performance. And if that person, if that individual also happens to teach in inner city Baltimore or in, uh, in the South Valley of Albuquerque, all the more reason why you would want to retain uh, that individual um, in that in that school, and the constraints uh, as a result of collective bargaining and and arcane statutes make that almost impossible. So the other camp of folks is saying the way to elevate the profession is actually to figure out a way to reward and retain the best of teachers. And maybe that's one in five, maybe that's one in three, um, maybe that's one in 10, but that's the other camp that is saying you can't just take the resources and spread them out to everyone because essentially that results in everyone getting a $86 raise. And even if you give that $86 raise every single year, that's not fundamentally changing the profession. In some ways, what you have to do, this other camp is saying, is you have to give some folks an $8,000 raise and some folks no raise based upon their performance. And that's the fundamental war that's happening in circles around what does it actually mean to elevate the profession. I never thought about it that way, but it's great. And I love the fact that you tied it back to the original analogy. Um, that I made is like, yes, we you know reward the right, just anything else, you reward the right activities and the right things um, versus just, just peanut butter spreading everything. It's great. Um, I know we also were gonna, I know there's been some strikes I've heard maybe going on. So mm-hmm. we'd love to to get uh, you guys to weigh in on that. And then we will, we'll do a quick wrap up after that and just get your, everyone's thoughts on like, What's the next best thing to do to, to kind of attack this as we wrap up? So um, we'll just dive in. I guess Aaliyah was talking, so we'll just go ahead and let you start with this one. So these strikes, I mean, some of this has already been said so far tonight that the entry-level pay and base pay in many parts of the country is way, way too low. Um, there's actually quite a bit of variability of what average teacher salary is in different parts of the country. So like uh, I spent time living in Kansas City, Missouri, and uh, just five or six years ago, first-year teachers were earning $25,000. Here in Washington, D.C., I'm not sure what entry-level pay is, but there are folks who have not necessarily been in the classroom for all that long, but if they've been highly effective can be earning six figures and more. 
Um, I think average pay in New Jersey is more like 80,000. So I'm not sure what it is in New Mexico right now, but you already, you can get the sense from the examples I offered how wide ranging it can be. Um, so there's, there's, there's the narrative um, that is kind of true generally, but again, contextualized can mean a lot of different things. And then there's this reality around, around pensions that in a lot of the places where there have been strikes um, can really overshadow um, and I think honestly are foreshadowing what's going to come down the pike. So in a lot of places where districts are approaching bankruptcy because the, their pension systems are so overburdened, the, there have been systems that are, have what are called defined benefits as opposed to defined contributions where someone has been told you're going to get, once you retire, you're going to get this percentage of your salary until you, for in perpetuity. Um, but that's not actually how the, the market works. The market doesn't guarantee an 8% return. And so when the, when the, the markets don't actually return that much and the, the pension fund that everyone's been paying into a certain amount for so long doesn't actually have enough because people are living longer, working longer, um, there's, there's going to be a rub. So I actually foresee more of, this, of strikes like this in the future where the actual take-home pay, what is going home in people's paychecks and pockets feels like it's less and less, but what the district is actually responsible for, the personnel line item, is going up and up, um, that's going to be a real problem. And it is complicated enough that it doesn't fit neatly into a headline and it can be misperceived as um, the cause is something totally different. Uh, in California, the, the fight in Los Angeles, if you just read headlines or even just read the few first three paragraphs of an article, it would think it's about a fight between charter schools and traditional district schools when the real problem is that the district was going bankrupt because of obligations like what I just described. Families are choosing to, to send their kids to a school other than the school that their child was zoned to. That doesn't mean that the, the math that the pension system was built on was wrong. Um, so this, this gets highly nuanced and confusing quickly. And so I'm not quite sure how the politics are going to play out over time, but it's, it's a problem and it doesn't help the quality of the profession. Oops. Yeah. So we're going to, that's, that's, wow. It was a lot there. I really, I'm still like trying to unpack it all and trying to put it all together. And I think like, especially some of the stuff you talked about at the end where it just seems like, like take home pay is going down, but the the budget and the money that actually is coming out is much much larger. And I think that was we that came up earlier, just talking about like you have to fund the pension. So, what do you do with that? How do you get the money in there? It's just so much going on. And I also, I think uh, council. I don't know what you think on this, but I think there's a whole lot more. We can easily do an entire show on this one. Did council? Did you have anything to add before we go to um, Christopher and Janice? Um, I, I'm just curious as far as. 
uh, for our listeners, um, can any of you first, just quickly, as far as educating folks, um, tell you know when when you say charter schools, I think a lot of people assume that it means like a private school or something separate. I don't think it's common knowledge um, when you talk about what is a, a charter school versus um, you know regular public school, and I'm interested to know whether or not because I feel like you ask ten people. Um, how, what do they think about charter schools? And you're going to get 10 very different opinions. Um, can any one of you first tell us what a charter school is versus a public school and whether or not you believe it's a good thing or should we be focusing more on just public schools and not these other types of, you know, different types of schools? Denise, you want to take a stab or you want me to take a stab? Oh, go for it. You got, you guys are, are the maestros. I'll, okay. I'll, I'll, ask, I'll answer the second question. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, look, so and 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 I'm going to give a very simplistic. I'll start I'll start at the simplest version. So, um charter schools are public schools. Uh a lot of folks are now referring to them as public charter schools because they are public and we seem to need to reinforce this point that uh charter schools are public schools. They are public schools. They are they are funded with public dollars. Um they are approved uh, by entities that are called charter authorizers that are usually public or governmental bodies like districts or states, but sometimes third party, um, third parties as well. So they, they are authorized. They, they literally submit a charter, uh, a, a large document, which is why they're called charter schools, um, that, that is basically a, a business plan, a business plan for uh, starting a new a new organization, a new company, right? A new, a new restaurant, a new school, right? It's a, it's a business plan for, it's a business plan for a school. Uh, generally speaking, funded the same way as traditional public schools. Although, although there are some, some subtle differences around facilities funding and, and the like that, that, that people will talk about as inequities in the funding systems, but generally speaking, funded the same way. But the, I think the most important thing for for listeners to know is that charter public charters public charter schools operate with much higher degrees of autonomy and much higher degrees in most cases of accountability. And so, a public charter school can be closed for poor performance. Right. Um, a public charter school can be closed for inability to follow regulations or financial controls. Um, a charter school can also be replicated and grow based upon uh, high performance. And so there is a there's a piece of this that where they have a lot more autonomy. They they don't have to operate by a lot of the rules, the regulations, um, the collective bargaining agreements. You know, you, re, you they really empower principals to be uh, the leaders of their schools. And that's why a lot of charter public charter school leaders like being principals in charter schools, because they like the the autonomy and the freedom that goes with that. But the, but but part of the contract that they sign, literally part of the charter that they sign, uh, says that if they're not getting the job done, that they can be closed. And so greater accountability, but greater autonomy as well. Okay. Great. Thank you for that. Yeah, I think um, that was really good to lay it out that way. I, I always like to give the, the other side of it. And just to be clear, I mean, I've taught in public charter, private, um, you know, public schools. And so if you were speaking to someone that has taught in a public school, they may say, you know, well, 
the flip side to, you know, that conversation there is that, you know, what happens when, you know, a parent says, hey, I don't I don't like said public charter school. And then they put them in another public charter school and then they don't like that school. They have to go back to their neighborhood public school. All right. So sometimes this happens and this child is moved around multiple times. And then here comes March, April, May, and it's time to do, uh, you know, the state test. So that's always the argument. They say, well, we, we haven't had this student all year. Now, you know, the parent or, or whoever is, is tired of them, you know, being in whatever school, because again, the attrition rates are really high. I mean, you talk about these no excuse models, you know, certain CMOs have, um, which which are great, but at, at the end of the day, it doesn't work for every child. And so, you know, it's always, it's always important for people to understand um, that there's always that in the neighborhood school, right, that is still the school of record. I mean, Leah, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, if if they are put out of a charter school in some in some loca- um, locales, they have to go back to their neighborhood school. And so there's always this thing between, well, you know, they keep the cre- they cream up the, the top. And I don't think that's the case, but there's always that narrative. So I think we have lots of narratives that take place to try to like downplay one system or, you know, you know, over, over the other. But ultimately, I just wanted to share that side of it, too, because you often hear that. And then as it relates to African-Americans and, and school choice, so I used to lead Maryland CAN, um, which um, focused on having high quality seats um, for students in, in charter schools and just students across the board. And so it was always interesting because people assume that, um, you know, African-Americans were ill-informed about you know, school choice. This is sort of a, a white movement, you know, for parents who, hey, we didn't, you know, we don't want to pay for private schools. So let's create these charter schools, um, right, to put our students in. So that's always like the, the big elephant in the conversation. But ultimately, I think any and every parent wants their child to go to a school that is, you know, high quality, that does demand high quality academic, um, you know, outcomes for their students. But I just think that sometimes there's a myth that um, these charter schools are not you know, the, the African-American voice is not in it, but if you, there are waiting lists, come on, there are, I mean, thousands and thousands of kids waiting to get into these schools because they're strong. So, yeah. Yeah, I was going to, I was going to just say to that, to, 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 to piggyback and to try to answer your second question. I think the reason why public charter schools are an essential part of the solution is because to Janice's point, like you have, we have to, as a nation, figure out how to democratize choice. Like every single mom and dad, regardless of zip code, deserves to have choices that are high quality choices. I, th- I think again, to Janice's point, like parents and families deserve high quality choices and that should be, that should not be based on income. And so folks with means already exercise choice every single day by choosing private schools, by choosing to buy a home in a certain neighborhood. Um, but but if we're really going to live up to our promise as a nation, that means that to me, that means that all parents and families deserve to have multiple high quality options. And one way to get there is through high quality public charter schools. And the, and the only other thing that I would say, uh, Leah, before you jump in, is I would encourage listeners to Google some of the uh, like the African-American leaders of uh, school choice, How, Dr. Howard Fuller, um, you know, founder of Bayo, you know, I just, I think it's important to understand exactly what Chris just said, like, you know, wealthy families have options. Why shouldn't, you know, 
all families have options and, you know, school choice is one of those things where, you know, they, they should be able to get a piece of the pie. And if you look at the history of charter schools and the thinking about D.C. in particular, many of the charters were initially homegrown charters. I mean, and so now we have a different, you know, you know, a lot of charter management organizations. So, again, like they're replicated across um, the country. But, but, you know, some of the success that you see in sort of African centered schools, um, you know, they have a different model. And so I think, again, it's important to just understand like what they are, the public charter school, the private schools or whatever. But ultimately, there are advocates pushing. I mean, you can hear Roland Martin talk about it all the time. He's a huge proponent of, you know, school choice and all these different things. So there are a lot of people who can speak to the benefits of, of those things. Yeah, I mean, I, I echo everything my colleagues say here. I think bringing it back to these those principles that I say ground me are that learning matters and every kid has limitless capacity. So knowing that the system and knowing that systems are designed to resist change, how do we change our systems? How do we put pressure on our systems to realize the potential of every kid? Because we know that knowledge matters and we know that our the future of our universe relies on young people reaching their full potential. So, so when it comes to charter schools, they're public schools, they are tuition free, they're open enrollment. So misinformation abounds on are they private schools? No, they're public schools, they're publicly funded, they're publicly accountable. Uh, full disclosure, um, I'm I'm on this show in my personal capacity. Um, one of my roles as a member, as a as a as a citizen here in D.C., is that I'm um, an, a mayoral appointee to the D.C. Public Charter School Board. So I am I am an authorizer, um, and so our responsibility is to um, to have oversight over the system of charter schools here in D.C. That means that um, there's a there's a law that we are we have to follow um, school charters are held accountable to their their performance goals and charters as christopher described um, have to be authorized to have the opportunity to open and receive public dollars to educate kids parents have to choose to send their kids to that school um, charters don't get to choose their students and if charters do not meet their performance goals in order to have the privilege of receiving public dollars to continue to exist and serve kids, then they have to meet those goals. And we review um, a charter, charter renewal happens every five years. Now authorizing law is different all over the country and how well, so the strength of authorizing law is really important. Um, so the quality of charters does vary around the country. And that's been part of the challenge of this, of, of false narratives on this work all over the place is that, well, charters don't work. Well, I mean, how good is the authorizing law? Are, are they holding the charters that they've given the chance to open? Are they holding them accountable? How are they doing serving kids? Do parents actually want to send their kids there? Um, and so we're all kind of like learning more to do better. And um, there are examples where charters have done incredible work to elevate the boats for everyone. When you see that total public school enrollment has increased in a city over time, that sure sounds like a good thing. When I think about here in DC, I'm not thinking about competition between 
the traditional district school and the charter school that may be across the street from each other. I'm thinking about wanting to keep a family that wants to live here in D.C. rather than do the thing that in generations past everyone assumed you're supposed to move to the suburbs. Now, on that point, there's you, you, we, we, the, there's false information around families, uh, charters taking money away from district schools. In that same conversation, does anyone else turn to the point that when families uproot from the city and move to the suburbs, that's what they're doing? White flight was all about draining the public school system in the cities. Yeah. So families have been, to the point that both Janice and Christopher were saying, families have been exercising choice forever. Families with privilege have been able to do that forever. So when charter schools enter the picture, this is a way to put some pressure on the system to reorient priorities around what families want and need. Because it puts the power back in parents to decide, do I want to send my kid to the school around the corner? Or do I want to send my kid to this other school that has a different kind of curriculum, um, has a different kind of focus? That's incredibly empowering. And that's how, over time, we can change a system. That's a great point. And, and it kind of brings everything back full circle to the first topic about the college admission scandal and how that it kind of... Um almost puts a giant spotlight on this problem of privilege and how it starts, um, as, as Wiz has said before, and, and it hasn't been said by you, you folks before, it starts from way before college admissions, um, clearly. Uh, so, um, all right, folks, thank you for all of that. Before we go, um, next steps, solutions, what do we do next? Like, if there's one thing that, you know, in a perfect world that we do tomorrow for example like what what would that be and i know it's kind of a <laughs> open-ended tough question i'm sure there's a million of them but if you could just start with one thing as your, you know all of you what is that one thing that we should be doing next so i i'll take a little bit of uh, creative liberty here i'll say the, the the one thing that needs to be done as it pertains to where we started and college admissions is that systems need to get much more aggressive about about undermatching and about kids that actually are ready, willing, and able to go to some of America's best colleges, but aren't even going about applying, right? Um, and that's, I guess that that's what I'm getting at with the undermatching thing. In Delaware, we identified 500 kids that were eligible to get into a top 100 college, were eligible to get financial aid from a top 100 college, and were not even applying to college at all. And so there's a lot of opportunity just to get the ground running around kids that are, that are, that are undermatched that are, that, um, and like I said, we, we, we talked about those 500 kids. We worked with all 500 of those kids to apply. So there's a lot of work that systems can be done around, around undermatching. I think my, my global solution uh, to kind of, as we talked about the, the public education system is that one, one of the downsides of, of decentralization that, that we spent some time talking about tonight. Um, one of the downsides of decentralization is that uh, we're, we, are, we are actually quite siloed in America in terms of the way that our public education, uh, the way that our public schools operate. And so there are phenomenal schools out there. There are phenomenal rural schools. There are phenomenal urban schools. There are phenomenal traditional schools. There are phenomenal virtual schools. And, um, you know, uh, Senator Carper used to say in Delaware, let's find out what's working and let's do more of it. And so I think that for those that work inside the system or outside the system, 
we need to go spend more time in those best practice uh, schools and then figure out a way to scale those best practices. So it's simplistic, but I think the 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 benefit of digitalization is that there is phenomenal work happening and innovative work happening, and we just don't often do a good job of bringing that work to scale. All right, thank you. Uh, Janice? Yes. You know, as I think a lot, and we have a lot of these these conversations, and um, I always, I'm always empowering those who are going to be on the receiving end, the listeners, too. You got to share this information. It does no good for us to be talking in silos. Like, we talked a lot tonight about the difference between a public school, public charter school. There are a lot of people who's, who generally would probably never ask that question because they don't, you know, want to sound like, you know, ill-informed. But those are real things. And once you once you get something and, you know, next time you're at brunch, the next time you are, you know, on the phone with your friends or, you know, in a setting, be the ambassador to stand up and say, actually, this is what's right. This is actually the truth on this issue. Because I think, you know, we can talk about it. But we have to get other people talking about it in the right ways. So as, as it relates to school choice, you know, you know, as it relates to how that affects, you know, low income students, the history of school choice, the history of charter schools, all these different things. It's important for people to share the information. Um, so I just encourage all the listeners who, who are listening to make sure to get this information out because it's, it's nothing worse than than knowing it and then, you know, not sharing it. So that that's my high level. Just share this information because if we don't share it, then we're back at square one this time next year. That's right. Thank you. All right, Leah, close us out. All right. My little thing is, is, is what Janice is saying is uh, I'd go back to the kind of ridiculous blueberry ice cream metaphor described earlier, like reorient our thinking around who are we talking about here? We're talking about kids and the fate of our world sits on their shoulders. So we need to support young people to reach their full potential for our own self-interest and besides the whole social justice aspect of all of this work. The second bigger, more radical thing is I'd say, let's talk about getting rid of zones, school zones. Let's talk about getting rid of catchment areas and empowering parents to actually choose a school that they want. I think once those who have influence can't uh, can't just rely on buying into the best school that they want for their kid, and we all have a stake in it, that's where we're going to put some real pressure on the system to change. All right. That's great ideas. Thank you, folks. That is going to be the end of it. Uh, as Wiz had mentioned before, there's uh, you know so much more to wrap up here. We can do a lot of a lot more material. Uh, we want to thank all three of you folks. Uh, you all are big shots. I'm not going to be, uh, I'm just going to keep it real. You guys are big shots within what you do. We thank you for your time uh, and joining our little project and sharing uh, your knowledge with us. So thank you very much. We know you guys are very busy. Um, so our listeners know these are these are big wigs and we were lucky to get them on the show tonight. So thank you again, Leah, Christopher, and Janice. So Cutters, take care of thank each you other. Gentlemen. And Thank you guys so much. And uh, we'll hopefully we'll uh, get you back uh, down the road. You guys are always welcome to come back on the show for any topic that you want to bring on. By all means, there's so much more. 
Um, hopefully we can get you back uh, to talk about it. I have a bunch of notes here. <laughs> I wish we had time. Um, I, as, as you guys were talking, I was just jotting down. I'm like, oh, God, I have so many more questions, so many things I want to uh, <laughs> dive into. But we can't, unfortunately. But thank you once again, folks. And Cutters, uh, thanks again for you all and for supporting the show. And we will be back again soon. Thank you. Thanks, all.